The scripture reading for this morning is from 1 Peter 1, 13 through 21. Hear the word of our Lord. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust, which were yours in the ignorance, but alike the Holy One who called you. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who imperishably judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not that you are deemed with perishable things like silver or gold, while your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as the lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him the glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. I will give my own good morning to you all. Good morning. And, um, glad to be here with you. Glad to see you. It's always a joy to be in the house of the Lord. And, um, well, we are uh, continuing our walk through this series on the means of grace. And just as a reminder, what we're trying to do here, what we're seeking to accomplish is really just gaining an understanding of how we obey the command of 2 Peter 3.18 to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, we're not all only commanded to believe in Jesus, but once we come to faith in Christ, once our hearts latch onto him with this gift of faith, we are also commanded to increase in our relationship with him. We are to continue believing, uh, to continue growing in all the effects and impacts that that faith ought to have upon us. And so the question we've been trying to answer in this series is how do we do that? How do we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the historic, Protestant, and most importantly, the biblical answer to that question is we will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ by faithfully and diligently using the means of grace. That is the means that God has appointed for us to use in order to grow in our relationship with him. We've uh, looked at a few of these already. Uh, the word as a means of grace. We grow in our relationship with God by growing in our relationship with his word. Um, we've looked at baptism and the Lord's table and prayer and fasting and faith all as means of grace. <clears throat> now this week we're going to be focusing on um, walking in godly fear. That is using fear as a means of grace. Now really what we're getting at when we're talking about walking in fear, this is actually just a subset 
of what it means to walk in faith. We saw in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, for example, in relation to Noah, that it was when Noah was moved with fear that he was empowered to respond to God's warning in faith. So you see the connection there between his fear and his response of faith. Faith enabled him to see and understand the truth about God's warning. And seeing and understanding the truth about what God had made known to him caused him to fear, to fear the reality of what was coming, which then led to a response of faith. Now, I think it's important in this whole discussion to see this, that if you don't have genuine fear of God, then you do not have genuine faith in God. These two always come together. You remember in Romans chapter 3, verse 18, it describes unbelievers in the ungodly as those who have no fear of God before their eyes. They walk with no fearful regard of God and His ways. They walk according to their own standard and their own desires. Well, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17 that we're looking at today commands us that if we are believers, then we must live our lives under the principle of godly fear. Now, you probably don't need me to tell you that this is not an easy topic to address, uh, much less in one sermon, but I'm going to try to do it. We're going to run this race with some endurance, maybe, but we're going to get to the end. Um, I think what makes this topic so difficult to address is the reality that there's so much confusion about what it means to fear the Lord. Um, maybe more particularly, there's a lot of confusion about what it means for a believer to fear the Lord. It's not hard to imagine why the unbeliever should fear God. Why should the one who refuses to seek refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ live in, an, in a state of fear before the God of glory? Well, because the God of glory is going to bring that sinner to account for every single one of his sins, and the God of glory will vindicate his righteousness and his holiness over against that sinner by pouring out upon the sinner the punishment he or she deserves. So it's not hard to imagine why someone who is not in union with Christ, someone who is not saved and brought to salvation in Christ, ought to fear the Lord. You ought to tremble before him. But I think for us, it's much more difficult to discern what does it mean for someone who is in Christ to walk in godly fear. Well, that is what I want to address today. And I believe that this passage in 1 Peter 1 gives us some foundational direction to help us understand what it means. And uh, so as we get into this, I would ask you to pray with me. Pray that the Lord would give us some clear and helpful instruction from his word. And help us understand what it means to walk in godly fear. Father, in light of your glory and in light of your person, it's only right that we as creatures come before you with fear. How much more so ought we to fear you? as sinners who are in need of forgiveness, realizing that with you there is forgiveness so that you might be feared. 
God, your name is holy. And you will not allow your holy name to be tread upon by presumption or by the great sin of turning your grace into licentiousness. Lord, you are to be feared and you are to be treated with the holiness and the holiness of attitude that your character demands. So, Father, as we come before you here, united as your people, united in our common hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have been set free and delivered from our bondage to sin, those who have been released from the condemnation of judgment that's to come, Lord, we want to gather here together in a manner that honors you and upholds your holy name. So, God, please help us, even here this morning, learn and understand what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. God, I pray that we would tremble in every way that we ought to tremble. And I pray that we would hope in every way that we ought to hope. Lord, teach us how to walk that tightrope of, of a holy relationship with you. Father, we pray for those who are not among us. And... Um, whether by choice or not, by choice, I, I do pray that you would minister to them in the exact way that they need to be ministered to. God, we lift up Matt and Susie Parker to you, especially this morning. And uh, don't know why Susie's having these strokes, but Lord, I, I pray that you would help them understand what is going on. And I ask that in your grace and mercy, or that you would allow the remedy to be, to be known. and uh, You would help them understand how to respond to what's happening. Or give the doctors wisdom. And, uh, and even in the midst of this, I pray for Matt and Susie that they would learn to trust in your sovereign hand all the more. God, that they would rest in you as the one who holds their days in your hand. You've numbered the hairs on our heads, Lord. As I prayed earlier that... Whitfield said, we are invincible until your time for us in this world is done, until your purposes for us are complete. So help us live with that boldness. Help Matt and Susie, even now in this time, live with a bold confidence in the God who orders their steps and has numbered their days. Lord, for others who are not among us, for whatever reason it may be, I pray that you would Help them order their steps according to your clear and revealed will in your word. Regardless of consequence. Lord, let us walk in the fear of you. And let the fear of you order and guide our steps through the times in which we're living. We pray for this blessing. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so the basic question <clears throat> we're seeking to address today is what does it mean for the believer to walk in the fear of the Lord? Now, there are a few things to notice, particularly in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. Things that are really foundational for us to understand what it means to walk in godly fear. 
And I just want to list them out to you. Probably the bulk of this message is going to be walking through these points, but there are three of them. And first of all, I just want you to look with me in verse 17 and notice that the command to walk in the fear of God is directed towards all believers. The command to walk in the fear of God is directed towards all believers. 1 Peter 1.17, it says, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your sojourning or during the time of your stay on earth. So who are those who are commanded to walk in the fear of God? Well, notice the conditional statement. If you address him as Father. In other words, this command is not directed towards those who are walking in open unbelief. This command is not directed towards those who have refused, even by their profession, to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. This command is directed towards those who claim to know him. They call upon God as Father, which means that they are claiming to be in a relationship with Him as Father through His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so often today, the exhortation in light of that reality is just the opposite, right? Oh, God is your Father? Then you don't need to fear. You know, it's not what Peter says right here. Peter says in a very real sense that if you call upon God as Father, you have all the more reason to fear Him, to walk in fear. We're going to talk about what exactly that means in a minute, but I want the reality of what Peter is saying to sink in. If you are one who takes it upon yourself to identify God as your Father, then you'd better make sure that you allow the fear of God to have its full effect in your life. Why? Well, because by identifying yourself with Him in this way, you are claiming to have a very unique relationship with Him. And therefore, you are representing Him in a very unique way. And so having God as your Father definitely carries with it great privileges, but it also lays upon us a weighty responsibility to represent Him well as His children. Now secondly, notice in verse 17 that the fear of God is not only directed towards all believers, but it is also supposed to dominate all aspects of their lives. You see in verse 17 that believers are commanded to conduct themselves in fear. Now it's interesting, in, the, in Greek, I'm going to break out some Greek here for you, I'm not going to read it. But just be patient with me. It's important to understand what's happening in the original language here. In Greek, the form of this verb, conduct yourselves, carries a permissive idea. It's a passive form of the verb. So it's something that is happening to us. But in the context, it's demanding that this is something we are letting happen to us. It's not something we are doing to ourselves, but it is something that we are not um, refusing to submit to. Meaning that this is something we are letting happen. We are allowing godly fear to have an effect upon us. And it says we are to let fear have its full effect 
in every area of our lives. This is also important to understand what's happening in the Greek here. It says that we are to conduct ourselves in fear. That word in Greek really means our way of life. So conduct ourselves is talking about the way in which you live your life. Everything you do in life, in other words, is to be dominated by this principle of godly fear. So it's not just one part of our lives that is to be dominated by the fear of God. It's not just our Sunday lives, right? When we come and we sit in the pew and we put on the mask that we are God-fearers. And then we leave this room and we go out and we look exactly like the world. That is not walking in the fear of God. That is not being dominated by this holy principle of godly fear. And let me put it, let me put it like this as well. Walking in godly fear touches upon what you do and what you don't do when no one else is watching you. What are you like when you are alone in your bedroom and no one else is around you? What are you like with your wife or your husband or your friends or your family when the church folk are not with you? What comes out of you? Does it, is it communicating something to people that you are a person that fears the Lord? Or would they not be able to discern that from your life? If we could watch you in your private areas of life, what would we say about your fear of God? How much more so, what would the Lord say about your fear? See, the command here is not just to have a godly fear at certain times of your lives. The command here is to be absolutely overtaken by this fear of God. I think you could translate this whole phrase in verse 17 as, let your way of life be governed by fear. And this is really where the idea of fearing God as a means of grace comes in. It is a grace that we as believers are commanded to make use of. And uh, probably this is stated nowhere more clearly than in Psalm 111, verse 10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now pay attention to this. Good sense have all of those who practice it. Now look at that. that. That's telling us that fear of God is not just something that we have. Fear of God is something that we use. We are to practice this fear of the Lord. Now it leads to wisdom. It leads to the blessing of wisdom. And you know what wisdom is. Wisdom is not just knowledge. Wisdom is the understanding to know how to apply knowledge to real life. Right? It's, it's applicatory knowledge. You are bringing the knowledge of God and the truth of the gospel to bear upon your everyday life. You know, the reason why people can't bridge the gap between what they read in Scripture or what they hear preached from the pulpit and, and how it applies to their everyday lives is because they don't have the fear of God. That's what this verse would say. And so the blessing of walking in the fear of the Lord, of practicing the fear of the Lord, is that you gain wisdom to know how to live your life for God. So that's secondly what we see in 1 Peter. Still stuck in 1 Timothy. What we see in 1 Peter 1, 17. Now thirdly, notice in this verse that the Holy Spirit gives two realities that ought to compel us to walk in fear. 
So we have the command that is upon all believers. All believers are to fear the Lord. We have the understanding that that command is to encompass the totality of our lives. And now here we find two realities that the Holy Spirit gives us to compel us, to urge us towards walking in the fear of the Lord. Now the first reality that is pointed out here is judgment. The judgment of God. Those who call upon God as Father, this verse says, must conduct themselves in fear because God will bring each one of us to judgment. Now, notice two things about this judgment. God's judgment, first of all, is impartial. That's how Peter describes it here. Before the judgment seat of God, in other words, every single person is held equally to the same standard. Rich or poor, melanin deficient, or if you've got an excess amount of melanin, or however, you're white or black, or every, any other shade in between, right? we're all the same color, we're just different shades. Amen? All right. No room for prejudice based on skin color in light of that reality, right? Whether we're white or black or rich or poor or young or old or powerful or powerless, all things that matter in this world and that measure our importance according to the standards of this world utterly dissolve the moment we stand before the holy throne of God. Now, I want you to understand as well that this is not, there's not only a slack, no, no, no. It's not as though there's a leniency for believers in relation to the judgment day either. Boy, there's a, there's a huge part of this that I want to launch into, and I restrained myself in my notes. But I, I think it's important to bring this out. A lot of believers walk around with the idea that we are not going to face God in judgment. Sentence has been passed, right? Christ has already suffered the full total weight of wrath and judgment for us. What do we have to face on the day of judgment? What is left for us to, to fear in standing before the Lord? Well, there is one thing, one way in which that applies very richly to the life of the believer, but I want you to understand that just because you are, are, are a believer, it does not mean that God is not going to bring you before his judgment seat. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 through 14. What is the conclusion when all has been heard? Here's the conclusion. Fear God. Why should you fear God? Why should you keep His commandments? Because this applies to every person without exception. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, either good or bad. Now you see the principle of judgment there. Very often we think of standing before the Lord and we think of Him judging us simply based upon the bad things that we've done. But here the principle is God is not only going to judge bad things that were done in this world, He is also going to judge and evaluate and manifest the good things that His people have done in this world. See, simply declaring yourself a believer and addressing God as your Father does not buy you an escape from the judgment that is to come. It actually increases your accountability to God at His judgment seat. We'll get to that in a minute. 
And as I said, yes, believers will stand before God and will be judged. Romans 14, verses 10 through 12, Paul says to believers, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. You don't get any clearer than that. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And the Holy Spirit through Peter highlights this reality and says, this is one reason why believers must walk in fear. Because God is going to judge them, each one of them, before his throne one day. And he's going to do so impartially. Now, the second thing to notice about this judgment is that it will be according to our deeds. See there in verse 17, God will not only judge impartially, but he will judge impartially according to each one's work. So do the deeds of believers really matter? You bet they do. And one day we're going to find out how much they matter when we stand before God in judgment. See, judgment before the Lord is not based merely upon a profession of faith. Judgment before God is based upon the deeds of our lives. It's based upon whether or not the work of your life, that is the collective testimony of the way you live your life, judgment is based upon whether or not the work of your life proves or disproves your claim that God is actually your Father. That is what judgment will look like for the believer. It will be an opening up of their entire lives to evaluate them and say, does your life match your profession? And it's not because God doesn't know, but it is definitely going to make us aware of what was true and what was not true about us. And so Peter is telling us here, by the inspiration of the Spirit, that if we call upon God as Father, we have a greater obligation to conduct ourselves with fear in this world because one day God will expose just how much of that profession is real and genuine. Well, what then is the standard that God's going to hold us to as those who call upon Him as Father? What is the standard that He's going to measure us against when we stand before His judgment seat? Well, that's what Peter has already made known earlier in verses 14 through 16. So here we are to walk in fear because God's going to bring us into judgment. How, what is the measure? What's the standard by which he's going to judge our profession of faith in him? Well, it says in verse 14 that it's going to be based upon whether or not our lives bear witness to us being obedient children. If we call upon Him as Father, the obligation, the responsibility upon us, the pressure that that profession puts on us is to walk as obedient children in His light. And if you do not walk as an obedient child under the knowledge of God, you have no basis to call upon God as your Father. So Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed. This is what it looks like. Do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. Before you were awakened, in other words. Before you were brought to saving faith in Christ. Don't live the way you used to live before you knew God. Rather, as obedient children, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. That's the measure of whether or not you are an obedient child. 
How much do you look like your father? He's holy. He's righteous. His standard is high. And if you call upon Him as your Father and claim to be His child, you have a greater responsibility to measure up to His holiness than you do otherwise. And notice what Peter's doing here. This is such a parenthesis, but just jot it down. You can study this out later. Peter quotes from Old Testament law and applies it to the new covenant church and says, this applies to you. You want to know what it looks like to be an obedient child? It looks like you being holy the way God is holy. How is God's holiness defined? Look to His law. And there you will find the standard. The law writes down, encodes for us what the holiness of God is. Jesus Christ exemplifies for us what the holiness of God looks like. They're not in conflict. They come together. And that is the standard by which we as children of God must be ordering our steps. And the fear of God, the fear of facing God in judgment one day and having that profession evaluated is supposed to drive us to walk in the fear of the Lord. So holiness is the standard by which we will be judged and by which our profession of faith will be determined to be true or false. Not, not perfect holiness. I want you to understand that. I'm not saying that sinless perfection is the standard of an obedient child, but I am talking about progressive holiness. There is an increase of likeness to God, conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ that will accompany the lives of those who truly belong to Him. It is impossible for you to have been born again by the Spirit, united to the Lord Jesus Christ, and not then begin to reflect His character. Absolutely impossible. So we're not talking about perfect holiness, but we are talking about progressive conformity to the likeness of God. That's what it means to be a child. That's what the Scriptures tell us. It means to be an image bearer of God. It means that you are one who reflects Him. Now, as sinners, we, we all reflect Him poorly. But the work of redemption in Christ is bringing us to the point where that reflection is, our mirrors are being pieced back together. That mirror that was shattered in the fall by sin, the mirror of our lives is being pieced back together and the joints are being solidified there so that they're seamless and the spots are being rubbed off by the Word of God and by the Spirit of God and we are progressively becoming those who reflect the glory of God more fully. That's the Christian life. And that is the standard by which our profession will be judged when we stand before the Lord one day. Every thought, word, deed laid out before us. The books open. And that standard of what it means to be a child of God will be held up and our lives will be compared to what God has said should reflect the nature of His children. And in light of that, Peter says, this is why we must conduct ourselves in fear before the Lord. Now, let me break here for a second. I feel like the whole sermon's been kind of like a break, <laughs> jotting this way and that way, but just, just stay with me. Let 
If this does not make you want to pursue the Lord in holiness, then you don't love Him. If the thought of standing before the Lord in judgment does not compel you to live your life more fully for His glory, then you don't know Him. However, if our fear of God were stuck there, then as believers, our fear of the Lord would be incomplete. Because if we were only looking to God's judgment and the fact that we're one day going to stand before Him and His law is going to be held up and we're going to be compared to it, if we're only looking to that as the standard, there's no hope in that. And that is, we might have terror and we might have fear in, 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 in respect of that, but we won't have the kind of godly fear that the Lord is calling upon us to exercise. So what is it that has to be added to this element of the judgment day of God and standing before Him? Well, that's what verse 17, or excuse me, verses 18 and 19 go on to unpack for us. We're not only to, to, to be compelled to walk in godly fear by the fact that we are going to stand before God on the day of judgment, but we are also being told that we ought to walk in godly fear because of our fullness of redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I know, you, I know you didn't follow me right there. I probably said it too fast. You should fear God because you're going to stand before Him in judgment. However, Peter also says you should fear God because of the fullness of salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 18. The command of 17 is conduct yourselves with fear during your stay upon the earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You see what he does there? He not only pairs together this call to fear God with judgment, he pairs it with redemption. And you won't have a godly fear. You won't walk in godly fear if those two realities don't meet in your life. Let's unpack that a little more. Godly fear of the day of judgment is not a Christless fear. I think it's kind of shocking that Peter holds up Christ's work of redemption as a reason why believers should walk in fear. But what it's telling us is that redemption in Christ does not remove our need to fear the Lord. It increases our need to walk in godly fear. Now, this is where the discussion of walking in godly fear gets a little complicated and where the confusion is introduced. For most people, our redemption in Christ is actually not a reason that we should continue walking in fear. It's a reason that we should not live our lives in fear. We have full redemption, right? In the words of Romans 8, verse 1, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a glorious statement for those who know their sin. You know yourself to be a sinner. You hear this statement from Romans 8, and your heart floods with hope. There's no more condemnation for me if I'm in Christ Jesus, regardless of what I see is true of myself. 
No matter how I failed last week or the week before or last night or this morning, no matter what ways I have stumbled, there is no condemnation that is being reserved for me in the presence of God because Christ Jesus, my Savior, has borne it all. That's great hope. Christians will point to a verse like that and say, well, doesn't that then mean that we shouldn't fear God? If there's no condemnation for us to face before the judgment seat of God, then should we continue fearing Him? Aren't we doing an injustice to the work that Christ has done for us if we say we should should fear God still in light of what He's done? Well, you can add to that the testimony of other passages that seem to call us not to fear the Lord. For example, Romans chapter 8, verse 15, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. Right? So fear is viewed as something we've been delivered out of. You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now here, this verse seems to say that fearing God is antithetical to Enjoying sonship with God. To be a child of God means that you are not walking in a spirit of slavery leading to fear. It means you are walking in a spirit of freedom. Right? So doesn't that seem to contradict what Peter's calling us to do in 1 Peter 1.17? Which is it? Are we to fear again or are we not to fear? Or you can add to that 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. This is the one that comes to Christians' minds most often when you're talking about the fear of the Lord. Where this verse says, We've come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, pay attention, we're getting to it. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in the world. There is not fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. Now, Doesn't that clearly tell us that if we still have fear of God, in essence, we have not yet been perfected in his love? We haven't come to believe and to know the love that God has for us in Christ if we are still having a sense of fear in relation to God? See, all of these testimonies from Scripture come together and beg the question, how do we bring these two things together? How do we obey the command to walk in the fear of God and yet at the same time uphold these verses that tell us not to fear God? Well, I think this is where we have to understand that Scripture describes two different kinds of fear in relation to God. And it is our duty as Christians to oppose walking in one of those kinds of fear and to embrace walking in the other. Okay? So two different kinds of fear of fear of God. There is a right kind of fear that we're going to call a godly fear. And then there is a wrong kind of fear, which we're going to call an ungodly fear. Pretty creative. There's a godly fear and there's an ungodly fear. How do we understand the difference between those two things? 
And we are coming to a close, so stay with me. First of all, we need to make a clarifying statement about godly fear. If you have a New American Standard Bible 95 update or an ESV or maybe an NIV, if you ever come across a passage that says, fear the Lord, especially in the Psalms, it'll have a footnote at the bottom that says, revere him or reverence, right? Well, contrary to what many people will tell you, the difference between a godly fear and an ungodly fear is not characterized by an absence of terror or trembling. Therefore, it is not merely to be spoken of in terms of reverence. Let me tell you why. Reverence, having reverence for someone, means having a high esteem for that person. You hold them in high regard. You respect them. You, you want to do what is pleasing to them. You admire them. That's what it means to revere someone. That is obviously a part of what it means to walk in the fear of God, but that cannot describe the totality of what it means to walk in godly fear in light of what the rest of scriptures say. So, for example, there are many passages that make clear that fearing God includes more than just revering Him. It actually includes trembling before Him. Hebrews 11.7, we've already pointed to that one with Noah. When God made his warning known to Noah, how did Noah respond? He became anxious, it says in the NASB. He was fearful. And in light of that fear, he moved in faith to flee from the wrath that was coming, to go to the place of refuge. Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, God himself describes godly fear in this verse as including trembling before him. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble in my presence? And in fact, further down, it says not having this kind of fear is seen as defiance. I think you see that in verse 30, uh, 24. Do not, they do not say in their heart, let us now fear the Lord our God. They were being defiant against him. So here God himself defines fear. He describes fear as trembling before him. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus himself commands us to fear God in light of the punishment that God can inflict upon us in hell. And he's not speaking to a bunch of unbelievers in that passage. He is talking to his disciples, those whom he is about to send out to minister in his name. Now, from the lips of Jesus, there is an appropriate fear of God that includes the fear of hell. Now, don't tell me then that godly fear is merely about reverence. It's not. It includes trembling. Well, if the distinction between godly fear and ungodly fear is not defined by the presence of reverence for God, then what is it? What is it that, that makes the distinction between the two? Well, as usual, Chuck Spurgeon, as Corbin said this morning, our beloved Charles Spurgeon had one of the most helpful ways to think about this. Spurgeon said, the difference between ungodly fear and godly fear is simple. I'm glad it was for him. <laughs> he says, ungodly fear is fear that draws men away from God. 
Godly fear is fear that drives men to God. See the difference? An ungodly fear is a fear that will cause you to run away from God. A godly fear is a trembling of the soul that will cause you to flee to God. Right? There's a difference. Ungodly fear makes you afraid to come to him. Godly fear makes you afraid not to come to him. We see this distinction all over Scripture. And I cut out so many passages. You're going to be grateful for that. But here are just a few. Let me list out some places in Scripture that describe ungodly or unholy fear. Starting at Genesis chapter 3. We see ungodly fear manifesting in Adam and Eve. After they had sinned, they heard the presence of God coming, drawing near to them. And how did they respond to God approaching them? It says in verse 10 that they sought to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord because they were afraid. They had fear in their hearts, but it wasn't a fear that drove them to go deal with the issue with God. It was a fear that drove them to run away from God. As if that could ever actually happen, right? Sowing our fig leaves, right? Covering our nakedness, thinking that God's not going to notice, right? That's exactly what they were doing. But it was, it was motivated by this ungodly fear to hide themselves from the Lord. You see this same principle in Matthew 25, verses 24 and 25, with the parable of the talents. You remember the one that, out of fear, went and buried his talent, right? He was filled with an unholy fear in considering who this master was. He says, I, I knew you, master, that you were a hard man. You reap where you did not sow, and you gathered seed where you did not scatter, and therefore I was afraid. And so how did he respond? He responded by taking what the master had entrusted to him and burying it to keep it safe. And then he went about his business, living his own life, doing his own things, until the day when the master called him to account. Now what kind of, what kind of mark is that painting for us? What kind of picture is that painting for us of what ungodly fear looks like? It looks like avoidance, right? Knowing that you have a master who has entrusted certain things to you, but you are terrified of him, so terrified of him that you are actually paralyzed with fear. And so you take all that you are responsible for, you bury it away, you hide it away, you live your life, and then ultimately you come before the Lord and He sees you've not done anything with what He's entrusted to you. Well, the excuse, I was afraid of you, will not suffice on that day. We see, just, just in principle, we see that that, that is an ungodly fear. It, it, it leads us to inaction. It leads us not to come deal with the Lord's things appropriately. Now, that's not the kind of fear that God wants us to have of Him. He wants us to have a holy and a godly fear. The kind of fear that Paul had in 2 Corinthians 5.11, where he said, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. What is he persuading them to do? To come be reconciled to God. See, for Paul, being awakened to fear God led him to seek reconciliation with God. He wanted to make peace with his enemy before he came to judgment. That's godly fear. 
And it led him to seek that same kind of reconciliation with those who did not yet know God. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Be reconciled. See, it's not a fear that drove him to flee from God. It was a fear that drove him to run to him. Chase after God. You see, this same kind of fear, this is what God promised he would put in the hearts of his people in Jeremiah 32, 40. He says, in the new covenant, what will make his people persevere in the faith and not turn away from him is not their own self-will. It's not their own abilities or their own determination not to turn away from the Lord. They will not turn away from the Lord because the Lord will put the fear of him in their hearts. And you see the characteristic there of a godly fear. It's not a fear that runs away from the Lord. It's a fear that is terrified to depart from the Lord. Exodus 20, verses 18 through 20, really lays this out helpfully. You see, not only a command from Moses for the people of Israel not to fear God, but then you see Moses telling them that the reason God came and manifested himself so powerfully is so that they would fear God. So which is it, Moses? Are we not to fear the Lord or are we to fear the Lord? Moses says, yes, you get it. See, the kind of fear that Moses was telling them not to have was the fear that made them tremble and stand at a distance from the Lord. The kind of fear that God wanted them to have was the kind of fear that drove them into a binding union with God where they sought to do what was pleasing in His sight. You see that there in the next... Uh, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of Him might abide with you, so that you may not sin. What is, God's, what is the, 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 the purpose of putting fear of God in our hearts? It's to drive us away from sin and drive us further to the Lord. So in light of all of this, as we're closing... What do we mean then when we're talking about walking in the fear of God? What is Peter talking about? What is the Holy Spirit driving at in 1 Peter 1.17 where he calls us to conduct ourselves in fear? Well, what we are talking about is simply this. It's living the totality of our lives in light of the fact that we must give an account of ourselves to God on the day of judgment, and the only way to escape condemnation on that day of judgment is to abide in Christ. Simply put, that's the kind of fear that Peter's calling us to walk in. It's a fear that is terrified at the prospect of standing before the judgment seat of God clothed in nothing except our sin. Keeping that in one side, and then on the other side, knowing, oh, I've got to abide in Christ if I want to abide in His love. I've got to cling to Christ if I'm going to be found in Him. Wasn't that Paul's greatest fear in Philippians 3? I'm going to do everything I have to do just so that on the day, the final day of Christ Jesus, I will be found in Him. Paul didn't presume, he didn't assume that he was going to be safe on that day and then just go living about his life doing his own thing. His whole life was directed to this one holy ambition to be pleasing to God and to hold fast to Jesus. That's what it means to walk in the fear of the Lord. 
You're not resting in some prayer that you prayed 30 years ago that had no impact on your life. But you are actually heeding the command of Jesus to strive to enter the kingdom of heaven. You become that violent man who takes heaven by force. You say, Lord, I'm going to have your blessing. I'm going to be with you in glory. If it's the last thing I actually accomplish, I'm going to pursue you with everything I've got. That's what it looks like to walk in the fear of the Lord. Albert Martin had a wonderful expression that I wanted to bring out here. Walking in the fear of the Lord means that you are walking, you are, you, oh man, as this is what happened to me whenever I was listening to the sermon too, I teared up and it was, walking in the fear of the Lord means that you are walking with a regard only for his smile. And you are terrified at the thought of seeing his frown. So to walk in the fear of God, it doesn't mean that you, you walk in fear of going to hell as much as it is walking in fear of ever being separated from God. You know, isn't that kind of like the bond that is between a husband and wife who, who love each other, who truly love each other and walk in love? Isn't that kind of some of that, some of that fear of just not being with your spouse? Not, not, not growing in your... One of my greatest fears in my marriage is that Jamie and I would not be increasing in our sense of union together. That drives me to actually make decisions to cultivate a healthy and rich relationship with her. And I'm not perfect at that. You can go ask her. I give her permission to disclose everything in the closet. Maybe not everything. But my point is simply that, see, this kind of godly fear, it's not driven just by a terror that is not trusting of the Lord, and you just see him as miserly and despotic and just ready to lash out at you at any, any given moment. That's not the kind of fear of God that God wants us to have of him. He wants us to have the kind of fear that drives us to do everything we can to make sure we are not departing from him. That's the kind of fear that's going to mark believers in the new covenant. And, um, you know, I remember, let me share this and then we'll be done. I remember early in my Christian life, uh, my greatest fear, after the Lord saved me, I, it was a glorious, really just reality, my perception of reality shattering experience, just coming to the Lord. In my greatest fear following being brought to Christ was a fear of not being genuine. I was terrified of being a false believer. And I would lay down on my floor for what seemed to be hours. It was actually only like 20 minutes. But young in your faith, you know, you have a different perspective on things. I would lay on my floor and just beg the Lord, Lord, please, please let me be genuine. Let me know you in truth. Let me love your son the way I should. Don't let me deceive myself into thinking that something is true about me that isn't. 
You know, the most terrifying reality of that is thinking that you are something, and then when you get to the presence of God, all the facade is melted away, and you see exactly what you were, only now it's the first time you've ever seen it. And it's too late. My greatest fear when I came to the Lord was that I had not yet come to the Lord. And you know what that kind of fear did? That drove me to seek Him all the more. It drove me to pursue assurance of salvation in Him. And that same mechanism is what God uses in my life today to spur me on to seek Him. I wake up in the mornings and I feel that I'm lost. I'm going to hell. I don't know the Lord. Guess what God's doing in my heart at that moment? He is using the fear of His name to drive me closer to Him. So if you share anything like that with me, don't, don't, don't fall into despair when you don't sense that you are a believer. You wake up and you feel that you are not a believer. You need to take that as an evidence of God's grace and mercy towards you. And you need to act upon it. You need to pursue the Lord until you can say in a clean conscience, you know him. And more than that, he knows you. Even if that's just for that day. And you wake up the next morning and you're, <laughs> you're down in the pit again. Well, so be it. That's the path the Lord has called you to walk. And you need to be faithful to him in walking it. So so we live in the fear of God. And the more that we actually do walk in that fear, the greater our experience and understanding and knowledge of His grace will be. So may the Lord help us to walk with greater, a greater sense of His fear in our hearts. Would you pray with me? Father, I... I fear you, and I do not fear you the way I ought. Lord, I get so distracted by the things of the world. I get so uh, diverted by the things that glitter for a moment, but have no lasting value. Father, I pray that you would sanctify us more this morning. Lord, help us walk in a holy and godly fear of your name. Lord, let us be a peculiar people who do fear the Lord. Lord, a peculiar people who long for nothing more than to walk in close, intimate fellowship with you. May that be the mark of our lives, Lord. And may we honor your Son by living such lives. Help us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, a fear and a trembling that is derived from the thought of ever being found outside of Christ. Father, bless us to that end. For Jesus' sake, we pray together. Amen. Benediction from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16 through 7, 1. 15. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. 
and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. May the Lord give you much grace as you work that out, as you come out from among them and be separate and receive his promises.